Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I sit down with my longtime mentor and best friend, Dr. Donald Lehman. Dr. Donald Lehman is a professor emeritus at the University of Illinois. He's published over 100 scientific articles. He is extremely well-respected in the scientific space and considered one of the top experts in protein metabolism. Dr. Donald Lehman is truly world-class. And in this episode, we talk about how to design a protein-forward diet. We also discuss protein quality. How do you integrate whatever your protein choices are to design a diet that will optimize your metabolism. And finally, we talk about protein's impact on body composition. I hope you love this episode. Please head on over to my website, drgabriellelyon.com. There is a link there for my book, Forever Strong. This book takes into account 20 years of clinical research, core fundamental principles of Dr. Donald Lehman from bench to bedside. There's a ton of freebies. Please head on over to drgabriellelyon.com. You will see a link that says Forever Strong. Get it now. And when you get it now, you will get a ton of free extra content. Let's dive in. Thank you to Cozy Earth for sponsoring this episode of the show. I only promote and tell you about brands that I absolutely love. If you have not tried Cozy Earth sheets, then you are really late to the party. I've been using them for a handful of years. They are made from premium 100% viscous from bamboo, which means they are really soft and lightweight. So you are temperature regulated, whether you are someone who is hot or cold. These sheets are for you. I will tell you, they are soft, luxurious, responsibly sourced, and beautiful. You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of the time I try not to purchase new things because of the amount of waste that there is. If it's one thing that I don't purchase, use, it's sheets. If that is you, I love the fact that the uh, that these sheets are sourced responsibly. You will absolutely love them. They offer a 100-night sleep guarantee. That means you can sleep on these sheets for 100 nights, and if you are not 100% totally satisfied, you can send them back for a full refund. They're absolutely beautiful. They also have a 10-year warranty. I don't know any other sheet company that can say that. You can save, get this, 35% on Cozy Earth. That's right. Go to CozyEarth.com slash Dr. Lion, and you can save 35%. Amazing product. Highly, highly recommend their sheets. Thank you to Bite Toothpaste for sponsoring this episode of the show. Let me tell you about Bite. First of all, let me also tell you that bad breath is not a good look for anybody. And Bite Toothpaste is exactly that. I'm totally obsessed. It's a tiny little, it's almost like a little mint that you pop in your mouth, you chew it up, you brush your teeth, you spit it out. It reduces plastic. It reduces waste. It has clean ingredients. Did you know that you swallow 5 to 7% of toothpaste every time you brush your teeth? It is a large blob of toothpaste that people typically use and swallow. Bite completely fixes that for you. Not only that, you reduce waste. And we really do have to think about all the waste that we are creating. 
Bite is a dry toothpaste tablet made with clean ingredients, sulfate-free, palm oil-free, glycerin-free, super convenient. I think that you're going to love this product. It is mind-blowing. Comes in sleek glass bottles. They look amazing. Bite is offering my listeners 20% off your first order. Go to trybite.com slash Dr. Lion and use the code Dr. Lion at checkout. That's trybite, T-R-Y-B-I-T-E dot com slash Dr. Lion. Dr. Donald Lehman, Professor Emeritus, University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, over a hundred published studies. And really, I wince when I call you the grandfather of protein because that means that you've been in this for quite some time. And for the listener who doesn't know you and doesn't know our relationship, um, although I'm quite sure that they do, you've been a mentor of mine for the last two decades. And in fact, my book coming out, Forever Strong, is fully dedicated to you. So um, very, very exciting. Thank you for all of that. <laughs> and it's been a, a wonderful association for over 20 years and really best friends. <laughs> pretty, pretty amazing. And I'm so honored to have you on this podcast. And I know that you will be on many more times. In this episode, it's going to be very important for us to lay down the foundation the foundation of dietary protein, and really the crooks of meal distribution, why it matters, all the nuances, so that people can walk away and be able to build a diet tomorrow in a way that supports them metabolically. And by the way, Don, you don't even know this, but I am sending out a weekly email called 30 G's. Do you have any idea where that is? It's funny, right? Um, so 30, where, where, could, where could that have come from? <laughs> yes, the 30 Gs. You guys can sign up. It's totally free. You can go to my website. You can sign up for 30 Gs. And it's uh, 30 grams of protein. Every Monday, you will get a recipe. Although I'm about to tell you that Don is going to say that perhaps you might need more than 30 Gs. This is a great starting point. And if you're interested in learning how to cook and optimize for dietary protein, you can head on over to my website, drgabriellelyon.com and sign up for 30 Gs for free. Dr. Donald Lehman, let's talk about protein and protein distribution. And what do we even mean by that? Yeah, it's um, a confusing thing. And I think that I've had some hand in making it confusing based on a study we ran back in, I think, 2014. But, uh, you know, first sort of sort out a couple of things. In children, it, meal distribution doesn't seem to matter. The amount of protein per day is the issue. And if you get in, you know, the 50, 60 grams, whatever the growing child needs, when they get it during the day doesn't seem to make much difference. Around 2000, though, we began to realize that adults begin to reduce their efficiency of how they handle protein. Some great work by the Galveston Group with Bob Wolf showed that uh, in someone 25 years of age or younger, uh, 15 grams of protein at a meal would stimulate muscle protein synthesis very well. But in an older adult, they got essentially no effect and that it took somewhere in the 30 grams of protein to actually have an effect. 
Um, we went on and demonstrated that a big part of that decreased efficiency related to a regulation of mTOR and ultimately how much leucine as an amino acid that was a signal. And so now we know that in adults, there seems to be a minimum threshold, your 30 grams, something around 30 grams of protein, which is a minimum threshold to stimulate protein synthesis. And so that begins to make us start thinking about meal distribution. And so that 30 grams, again, as you kind of pointed out, that's sort of the minimum to get around 2.5 to 2.7 grams of leucine, which is what is required to stimulate protein synthesis. I don't believe that's the maximum, it's the minimum. And so, you know, the maximum's probably higher than that, 45 grams, 55 grams. We don't really know, it's sort of a decreasing curve. And so that becomes very hard to tell. And it's probably not the same in every single individual. You know, the bigger you are, the probably the larger the meal should be, uh, that type of thing. So, you know, I'll just sort of start with that and you can ask some questions from there. But what we now know is that the distribution, you need at least 30, 35 grams of protein in a meal to really stimulate protein synthesis in muscle. And as we know, as we get older, protecting muscle, and you and I like the term muscle-centric health, we know that protecting muscle is the key to long-term health. It absolutely is. And, you know, you mentioned this 30 grams of dietary protein as a minimum to stimulating mTOR, which is mechanistic target of rapamycin. And this is this complex within all tissues and within skeletal muscle is exquisitely sensitive to one of the essential amino acids, leucine, which you pointed out. The And by the way, this 30 grams three times a day, I think that we could probably blame you because yeah. it is <laughs> really yeah. based on your earlier research. And then after you made this discovery, this discovery came out of your lab as it relates to a protein threshold. And what do I mean by protein threshold? Meaning a 30 gram protein meal could be a little over four ounces of chicken. Typically 30 grams was given in either um a, a whey isolate or some kind of amino acid mixture. Now, based on 30 grams of protein three times a day, what did you initially see? What did some of the data initially show as it relates to, say, body composition or blood pressure? Did these earlier studies have any impact on the things that we value? Yeah, great question. <clears throat> After I answer your question, I'd like to back up to some of the basic research behind this. But um, what we know, what we specifically measured with Doug Patton Jones and I is we took a typical American diet, which has almost all of the protein in a, a meal late in the day, and we wanted to distribute it earlier in the day. So we had 90 grams of protein in the typical American diet, 10, 20. 60 grams at dinner. And what we did was redistribute that 30, 30, 30. And what we found was that the net daily muscle protein synthesis went up. So exactly the same food, exactly the same protein, just redistributing it, we got a more a greater net protein synthesis per day. Um, translating that into body composition, 
there's really not great data to show how that translates. Uh, we think it does. Um, and from there, you know, I would back up to some other research that sort of supports the concept. Um, there's a great study, uh, even before we fully understood mTOR and leucine and, and aging, there's a great study by Maria Arnaud uh, in France. And what she looked at was a low protein diet. So basically, they took individuals uh, that had a basically the RDA, around 56 grams of protein, and they looked at distributions. They looked at lots of small meals versus having one large meal. And what they showed was that if they didn't have a meal that contained more than 30, in fact, they use 45 grams of protein, if they didn't have a meal that got above 30 grams of protein, the net daily protein synthesis were lower and over a 21 period, there was detectively less lean body mass. Okay, so that's the first. We think that that meal threshold is key. Okay. Um, Teresa Davis went on and did some other types of research where they looked at continuous infusions. And she actually did it in young pigs. Uh, but what they looked at was IV infusion, where it was a continuous infusion versus doing it in boluses, uh, where it was discrete meals. And what she showed was that the pigs grew much more lean body mass with bolus meal feeding. So what we're beginning to learn is that muscle really wants to see meals. The worst of all worlds is doing lots of small doses of protein. As I said earlier, that seems to work okay in kids, but it doesn't work well in adults. So now the question becomes, okay, meal distribution is even what we're after or what I would actually say, and you've heard me say this before, it's not an even distribution. It's getting protein in the first meal of the day. Uh, Doug Patton Jones and I happen to do an even distribution, and I think that sort of has faked everybody out mm -hmm. forever. Um, I would just emphasize that there's not a single study to my knowledge that has ever shown that the noon meal is important, the amount of protein in the noon meal. Uh, but what I would argue is that of all of the protein synthesis studies that have ever been done, ever, they all use breakfast. They all use the first meal after an overnight fast. Why? Because protein synthesis is depressed and it's ultra sensitive to what you eat. Uh, and what we know is that if you don't have enough protein, you stay in that overnight catabolic condition. And we think that is uh, detrimental. Uh, we personally did studies with weight loss. And what we showed is that if you distribute protein into the first meal, that breakfast meal, you can blunt the amount of lean mass loss during a weight loss for obesity. So we know that that protein sparing effect works in short-term catabolic conditions. So again, what we're pretty comfortable with is that uh, protein at the first meal is important. Protein at a bigger meal is important. And beyond that, we don't know really what the importance of a middle meal would be. Yeah. And I think that you make a great point. Oftentimes we talk about even distribution as it relates to muscle protein synthesis. 
And I will say there are other things that we should consider. So you mentioned, and I'm going to clarify this for the listener, that the noon meal doesn't necessarily matter for the stimulation of muscle protein synthesis. Now, that may be true. There are other reasons above and beyond muscle protein synthesis that, again, this is part of the nuanced conversation, that make it very valuable to include dietary protein in that second meal. And would you like to kind of perhaps exactly you mentioned you mentioned blood pressure when you asked the question, and I sort of you you would think you you would think we've had these conversations before. (laughs) You know, this is uh, probably one of my most difficult interviews because you and I talk, although we haven't for the last two weeks, usually talk every day. We've done tons of YouTube videos, which I encourage you guys to listen to. Uh, but the goal is to really lay out some fundamentals. And, and this is a culmination of years of conversation to to lay out for you to really get some evidence-based information. So uh, before I interrupted you with my uh, backstory of how many times that we talk, we we're discussing that you made a very bold statement, which that statement was, it doesn't matter the amount of protein for muscle protein synthesis in that noon meal. That's not to say protein isn't incredibly valuable. And I would love for you to point out some of the reasons as to why, and perhaps another way in which we can think about dietary protein in that noon meal or middle meal of the day. Right, right. So, you know, protein is a macronutrient, so it's part of metabolic balance. Uh, Amino acids all have a lot of metabolic roles. And so everybody sort of focuses on the proteins, muscle protein synthesis aspect, uh, athletes and, you know, older adults. But we know from studies with metabolic syndrome and diabetes and things like that, that how you partition your carbohydrates and protein has a huge effect. And we've run, we ran actually multiple studies looking at using protein to substitute for carbohydrates. And when you do that, you correct all of the elements of metabolic syndrome. You lower blood pressure, which you mentioned. You lower fasting blood sugar. You lower the post-meal insulin response. You'll begin to reduce abdominal fat, the waistline. Uh, You'll decrease triglycerides dramatically. You'll increase HDL. Basically, all of the things that you're trying to do with pre-diabetes or even in type 2 diabetes. So using protein to reduce the amount of carbohydrates in in the diet Uh, There is a massive amount of literature over the last 20 years to support that's a great thing to do. And as you're pointing out, that means you need consistent meal patterns. You need a consistent macronutrient ratio of carbohydrate and protein. And now the next logical question is, you said carbohydrate versus fat. Um, As far as... Uh, research that I have seen, um, well, let's go back. The original metabolic syndrome data, Jerry Revens and others, was actually using fat to substitute for carbohydrate. And so you can get a lot of the same effects just by lowering the carbohydrates and substituting fat. Um, you know, I think it's still fairly controversial as to is is there an optimal level of fat in the diet? 
Um, I think that a lot of the things that we've heard about fat should be less than 30%, saturated fat less than 10 I think those are totally uh, overstated. They're extrapolations beyond the data. Uh, but I'm not necessarily in favor of an 80% fat diet either. <laughs> so, you know, I know there's a lot of keto people out there. Uh, I think that more of a macronutrient balance is a good approach. Um, you know, RDA for carbohydrates is 130 grams per day. I'm okay with that. I think it can create a very good balanced diet. Uh, you can balance that out, 130, 150 grams of protein, and then, you know, somewhere 60 to 90 grams of fat. That's a pretty balanced diet uh, without being extreme in any one of the macronutrients. Mm. I think that that's very good advice. And, and one of the things that I really want the listener to take away is to be able to think about how they can create a meal pattern that serves them. And right now, so far, we are laying out the foundation for the initial and somewhat original research. Well, it's not somewhat, it is original research of this overstated 30 grams of dietary protein three times a day. And is it necessary for muscle protein synthesis? And if it is, why? And if it's not, why not? And the first thing that you said is that really all the studies are looking at that first meal. People are coming out of an overnight fast. So we do know that distribution of dietary protein must matter. Otherwise, we wouldn't see the robust increase in muscle protein synthesis. And also all the subsequent data has all looked at that first meal. Not the second yeah. and not the last. Yeah. It's all looked at that first meal. And so, you know, if we take that and we go back to that first study about Ar Arnell, that uh, I mentioned. So if you have a low protein diet, 56 grams per day, if you're, if you're a vegetarian, vegan, if you're trying to hit a really low number, uh, the data is pretty clear that you need to be sure you get one meal. And whether that's the first meal, middle meal, last meal, in fact, Arnaud actually did it at the, mi the middle meal. They actually did it at noon. Okay. Uh, and so they had a 45 gram middle of the day meal. Then the question becomes is if I'm going to add, so I've now got one meal with 45 grams, let's say it's dinner. If I'm going to add another 25 or 30 grams of protein to my diet, I, I'm going to go from 56 up to 90 uh, grams per day. Where should I put it? And what I would argue is the research would tell you that adding it on top of the 45-gram meal is a, is a mistake. You need to put it into the first meal. So to me, that's the way to think about distribution is first, be sure you've got one meal that's in the 45 range, fine. Okay, then if you're going to add more protein as you go higher, add it into a second meal. And again, there's sort of an upper threshold, 55 uh, there's pretty good data that going from 50 to 90 doesn't net you anything. So then you should put into another meal. And now we get into things like Luke Van Loon's data, where they put in a fourth meal pre before nighttime. And there's pretty good data that that can increase muscle mass and strength by putting it in at a fourth meal. Um, so again, it's how you build the diet. Uh, but you first you for adults, you need to get at least one meal up into the 40 range. And 
the argument would be to start it at that first meal when you are coming out of an overnight fast. And there's, there is layers to this because some data would suggest starting out in the morning and not necessarily pushing that first meal can impact circadian biology and circadian rhythms. Um, I, I think from your perspective, would you like to see that first meal of the day have a robust amount of protein, say 45 grams, or do you not care? Are you happy with that first meal at noon with 45 grams? You know, I think the way to rec- to think about it is that as far as muscle protein synthesis, when you have a protein meal, you get about a two and a half hour anabolic window. And if you're only doing that once a day, I don't know if it matters whether it's 8 a.m. or 12 noon. Uh, Arnaud, again, did noon. Uh, your point is you're catabolic when you come out of the overnight fast, but you're still catabolic at noon. So it's it's the same difference. It's just that you know, you're only going to get two and a half hours of an anabolic period per meal. Uh, and and I'm not sure it matters what time of the 24-hour cycle you put it in if mm-hmm. you only have one. Obviously, if you have two, I'd spread it out. I'd have one and you come out of the overnight fast and I'd have another one at seven o'clock at night. I'd spread them. If I went for three, noon or nighttime, you know, I don't know of any data to pick one of those versus the other. Basically, what you're saying is it doesn't necessarily matter when, from your perspective, you're having the dietary protein meal, but the amount matters. And it sounds as if the timing does matter because if you're at, if, you know, if you're anabolic, and I think that this is really important to clarify for people rather than us further confusing them. Now, <laughs> in my in my clinical practice, I used to say, I don't care when people have that first meal. I no longer say that. I do think that as we begin to think more about circadian biology and uh, layer in influences from the environment, I like to see my patients having a first meal of the day earlier on, maybe 90 minutes to two hours after waking, 45 to 50 grams of dietary protein. I am happy with that. They are coming out of an overnight fast. Let's say they go train. They're having a robust amount of protein. And then for my patients, depending on what they need, I don't care so much about that middle meal. I would like it to be balanced from a macronutrient perspective. I think a a high quality protein being a protein forward meal plan whether it's 30 grams of dietary protein, again, the question go, be, you know, becomes what is the goal of that meal, yeah. right? Is it muscle protein synthesis? Do we know the impact of that second meal? And then, of course, the evening meal, I do like to have a robust amount of dietary protein. Uh, and again, that could be 45 to 50. So I know that there are two meals that are pretty robust. In that middle meal, that could be a lighter meal. Now, yeah. if an individual... Don was having um, three meals a day. How would you think about, I guess, number one, is it necessary and beneficial? I think that we both agree that one meal a day is not ideal. I, I think that we both agree one meal from a. I mean, again, 
I, you know, I'm trying to sort out some different people for you. I'm trying to sort out a vegetarian versus, you know, someone trying to, who thinks that the RDA is the right target, 56 grams per day. I mean, that puts limits. You can't have two meals with 30 grams if you only have 56 in the day. I mean, it's a math issue, right? Um, so there's that group. There's this other group that you and I have worked with, quote, patients. Ours were overweight people trying to lose weight. So they're catabolic by definition. How do you protect them? And then there is the uh, healthy 35-year-old who exercises every day. And can you really detect a difference? You know, I think I, I would break it into groups. But uh, to your point, uh, if the person's under any sort of stress, aging, sedentary lifestyle, losing weight, uh, or trying to gain muscle mass, I would have that first meal as soon after waking up as comfortable. We always had them eat their first meal with more than 35 grams of protein, uh, you know, before 7 a.m. So I agree. Uh, can you do, in a 35-year-old who's eating 150 grams of protein per day, uh, would you be able to detect a body composition difference within a month just by how they put it, what time their first meal was? I don't think you'd ever detect it. And that's a good point. And it's something that we haven't touched about. And I don't think we've actually ever discussed publicly. We should mention what muscle protein synthesis is, if it's breakdown or synthesis that's easy to be detected in these studies, you know, what exactly are we measuring? And is it simply a biomarker of what we think we are measuring? Yeah. Yeah. So protein synthesis is a form of a biomarker, just like when you go to the clinic and you get cholesterol measured and somebody tells you that's a biomarker for something. Protein synthesis is the anabolic stage of, of building new protein. But what we know is during the day that cycles, and it particularly cycles in muscle. You have an anabolic period after muscle, after a meal, and then it goes into a catabolic period. Uh, and so you're going back and forth with synthesis being higher than breakdown and then synthesis being lower than breakdown. So you're net catabolic. And that's cycling all day long. Uh, nighttime that we've been talking about is an extended period. So you typically, most people typically have around 12 hours between meals uh, where within three hours after your last meal, you begin to go catabolic. So we're spending an extended period during a catabolic period, which is why you and I both favor having fairly early first meal with protein in it. You know, that it's just logical. Um, you know, is it a biomarker? The, the problem is it, it's, a, it's a tracer study based thing that we do. We can measure it um, not super precisely, but it's a good indicator. Um, but after a protein meal, we might get 50 or 100% increase in protein synthesis. But, you know, it, if you just said, well, gee, that's a huge increase in muscle protein, you can't measure that in the next 14 days, even 20 days or a month uh, in a healthy individual. So uh, it's a biomarker that we use to measure everything from protein quality to meal distribution. Uh, 
And we think it's the right one because it's a very expensive process. Uh, Some estimates are that muscle protein synthesis burns up something like 25% of the calories in the body. It's a very expensive process where breakdown is kind of a trailing process and doesn't require much. So most of us who do these studies believe that the body is regulating everything on the synthesis side, not on the breakdown side. But again, it's definitely not a direct correlation that a little bit higher synthesis means you're going to be have X amount more muscle mass in 21 days. It's just not a direct relationship. And that's really important to point out because we do get so hyper-focused on reasoning. What is the reason why we have this amount of protein dose? How can we design a diet that influences our metabolism and influences our triglycerides and influences our body composition? And oftentimes in the literature, people will say, well, it's muscle protein synthesis. And that's not exactly correct. Muscle protein synthesis, like you so beautifully explained, is a biomarker of the amino acids doing what we believe that they should be doing and and stimulating the body in that way, which in turn in part, may contribute to the protection of lean body mass, which I say not just skeletal muscle mass, but um, many things, right? The protection of, of many things in the body, lean body mass, skeletal muscle mass, but it's not a direct correlation. Right. There was it's, something- a, it's, a key, it's a key component. And again, people, myself and others who do these studies believe that it's the right marker, uh, but- it doesn't translate directly. And, and uh, you know, just because you had a uh, increased protein synthesis for two hours after a breakfast meal, uh, that doesn't mean that a month later, you're going to have a lot more muscle mass. That, it's just not that clean of an answer. But we do believe, would you say that we do believe that it is a, a biomarker of the yeah. amino acids in the meal? So it's actually a it's, biomarker yeah. of meal quality. Yeah, it, it's, it's a way that we measure quality of things. We measure uh, meal distribution. We measure protein quality. We measure total energy requirements. It's, it's a way that we measure those things. And we think that it gives us the right directional answer, but it's not a quantitative answer. So we're looking, is, is this a good thing to do? Well, we think that's a good indication, but you can't say that, increase in protein synthesis is going to net you a pound of muscle. (laughs) Right, right. And that actually leads very nicely to this second meal conversation. You mentioned earlier that that first meal, we know that the anabolic influence of a meal, of an appropriately dosed protein meal, lasts about two and a half hours. There are other... um, for lack of a better term, machinery like EIF4, there are other things that happen, which I would love for you to explain as just a general oversight as to potentially why that second meal doesn't necessarily matter as much or that we know doesn't matter as much when it comes to dosing dietary protein. Yeah. So there were a number of us, you know, who have studied this, you know, first meal effect on protein synthesis. And my lab and a couple of others, Mike Rennie, 
Phil Etherton, my lab, Lane Norton, uh, we all started to said, well, if that's a stimulation of protein synthesis, how long does it last? And so we started measuring duration. And what we found was that protein synthesis in muscle will come back to baseline after about two and a half hours. And as we looked a little deeper, we realized that we, we mentioned the mTOR signaling before, what mTOR does. So when leucine goes up in the blood, it st stimulates mTOR, this signaling complex, and that stimulates a series of machinery known as initiation factors, EIF4 uh, complex, uh, S, the S6 ribosomal protein, and it stimulates a number of things which increase the machinery, increase protein synthesis. What we realized in studying this duration is that after two and a half hours, protein synthesis comes back to baseline, but all of the machinery is still stimulated. Leucine is still high in the blood, and it will still be high at four or five hours after a meal, depending on how much you ate. Um, EIF4 is still simulated, mTOR is still simulated, S6 is still simulated. And so you're now coming into lunch and all of the machinery is still stimulated, but yet protein synthesis is down. So what's the effect? Well, there's good reason to think that it's not going to be dependent on leucine. So we did a couple of studies where just giving a small amount of amino acids or a small amount of even energy actually would stimulate protein synthesis again. So there's this concept out there of a muscle full, which is what uh, I think Phil Etherton used. We've actually always looked at it as a refractory period that once muscle has been active for two and a half hours, it sort of needs to rest. It's a very energy dependent process. It's depleting ATP and muscle. And it appears that there might be some safeguards against getting too low. Obviously, if you deplete all the ATP in your muscle, you can't move. <laughs> you, you, you fall over in a heap. So there may be some safeguards to how low ATP can go. And that's what we actually published. Um, we don't know if that's totally true. It hasn't been repeated by another lab. But it sort of makes sense. We know that there is this refractory period. And again, that leads us into the noon meal. What should it be? No one's ever really studied it. So, you know, assuming that it should be 30 grams, there's no harm in that. <laughs> but there's no data really back that either. And that's really important to think about when you at home are designing a diet is there harm in having another robust meal with 30 grams of dietary protein? Absolutely not. Is there benefit above and beyond muscle protein synthesis? Absolutely. We're talking about metabolic correction. We're talking about replacement of carbohydrates. And some of the other things that we haven't actually spoken about are what are the other influences that protein has on the body above and beyond muscle protein synthesis as it relates to muscle turnover, protein turnover, yeah. right? There before, we, before we leave that, I just I would I'd highlight one more way of thinking about it. So if I have if I have two meals, I have a thirty gram protein meal um, at breakfast, and I have a twenty gram protein meal at lunch. 
where should I put 15 more grams? I'd put it in breakfast. And I would take breakfast to 45 as opposed to taking lunch to 35. So that, frankly, is how I would do it. So again, it's, it's how do you choose to distribute it? Uh, again, if we're talking about diabetes and you'd like an even distribution, that's another reason to make it even. Um, you know, I think there'd be a bigger anabolic effect of bringing breakfast up to 45 than to bringing lunch up to 35. And the reason you're saying that is because of it being the first meal of the day, overnight fast, having a robust amount to really optimize the machinery. Right. Yep. And all of the leucine effects are going to be most important at that meal. We don't even know that leucine's important at the lunch meal. There's no data to say it is. Uh, so having 20 grams at lunch might be just as effective as having 35. Hmm. That would From be a muscle protein synthesis standpoint. From a muscle protein synthesis standpoint. And that's important. Not from, a, really. not from a metabolic, but from a protein synthesis. So again, we know that breakfast is acutely sensitive to it. So I would lean toward maximizing that meal. Thank you to Element for sponsoring this episode of the show. If you watch any of my content, you know I love Element. And especially being here in Houston, I probably sweat at least four gallons of sweat off my body on the regular. Element helps me replenish that. It contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. One of my favorite things about Element is not only is the product phenomenal, it is research-backed, but super easy to travel with. They come in very small packets, which I love, Element is the way to go. Drinkelement.com slash a Dr. Lion. And one of the things as we approach summer, we have to think that oftentimes we're going to be very busy running outside and we're not going to necessarily recognize that we do need to stay hydrated. And the key to hydration isn't that it's just water. The key to hydration is really replacing what you lose. Don't just lose water, you lose sweat. And right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packs of Element free. It's a great way to try all the flavors. Share it with someone. You can go to Drink Element. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash Dr. Lion. I know you guys are going to love it. Thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. You guys know me by now and you know that I love Inside Tracker. I love their different plans. Why do I love their different plans? Well, number one, people age at different speeds. The only way that you can see how you're actually doing is to truly look at the data. How you feel is not always how you are. And by examining your blood work, whether it's once a year, twice a year, or quarterly, which is really what you should be doing, the only way to know is to actually examine it. So Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan that helps reduce your stress, improve your sleep, your metabolism, because again, health is all about the long-term trajectory. It's created by leading scientists in aging and genetics, biometrics. You can look at things like your blood levels related to your white blood cell count, your red blood cell count, 
your cardiovascular risk. There's all kinds of things that you can get information. And information is the way in which you change your life. Head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion, and you can get 20% off the entire store. I know what you have for breakfast. Why don't you share what? (laughs) You've had the same breakfast for easily 20 years. Actually, I vary, I vary a little bit, you know, the, you you know, the, the eggs and that approach does work, but I basically have a, a whey protein, uh, yogurt with berries and milk sort of shake every five mornings a week, five mornings a week (laughs) with about 45 grams of protein in it. And he gets crazy. Sometimes it'll be blueberries and sometimes it'll be <laughs> strawberries. It could be a crazy berry I'm mix. Def- I'm definitely hooked on uh, blueberry, but I actually had it with lemon yogurt today. So that's pretty nuts. I've never seen that. I, I've actually <laughs> never seen that. Actually, blueberries and yogurt are a great combination. Well, I... Blueberries I, and lemon yogurt. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, uh, sounds like a great uh, a great idea. The And you don't vary. and. Is there a reason why you don't vary? And again, this is funny because, again, Don is my best friend. I do know these answers. But for (laughs) individuals who are listening, this is the guy that actually discovered these thresholds. They came out of his lab. And that becomes so fascinating to be able to speak to the individual that really put the science behind some of the things that we're discussing. Is there a reason why you do a whey protein shake with yogurt and berries? Yeah, I, I mean, whey is the uh, highest concentration of leucine per calorie or per gram of protein. It's almost 12% uh, leucine. So you get the maximum effect for the fewest calories. Um, it's very bioavailable. It's quickly digested. We know so one of the questions I always get is people will say, well, if I have this protein shake, what period of time should I take it? Can I can I drink it over the next four hours? And the answer is no. The issue is you want leucine to come up in the blood fairly rapidly. So if you're doing protein shakes, we always ask people to drink it within at least 30 minutes or not or, or less because you want the leucine level to get up in the blood. You need about a two and a half to threefold increase in the blood level of leucine to see these effects. Okay, so people will talk about slow digesting proteins like a whey, like a uh, casein, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so if you if you take uh, 25 grams of whey protein, you'll max out, you'll stimulate leucine. But if you take 25 grams of casein, it digests so much slower and has less leucine that you won't get the same effect. Okay, so the protein quality does matter. and, and the digestibility matters. And so I do it. Um, we sort of developed it during our weight loss studies. We wanted, we wanted something that was convenient. Uh, we can do it with eggs and meat and things like that. We can do it, but they all take more time. And most people are getting up in the morning. They're dealing with kids. They're getting ready for work. They're trying to run out the door. And so a shake is something you can take with you. It's portable. So it was just... It was convenient. Uh, it was easy to do. And frankly, I've gotten used to, I like the taste. <laughs> um, there's a few very important things that you said. Consistency is key. 
And also knowing what your macros are going into the day, having it set up where you're not guessing, where you're not at the whim of going to a breakfast where potentially you don't know exactly what they're cooking or how they're doing it, even if you can eyeball it. The other really important thing that you mentioned was this digestibility concept. Mm-hmm. Whereas a protein shake, something with yogurt, Greek yogurt, whey protein, very fast to digest, meaning it gets into the bloodstream quick. It doesn't, it is not slowed by a lot of fat or fiber. Now, for the individual that is going to wake up and have eggs and some kind of fiber or more saturated fat, a truly robust meal where that digests slower over a handful of, I don't know, maybe it takes two hours to digest. Yeah. How can an individual think about that as it relates that's a great, to in- that's a great in- question. I, yeah, and I get that question once in a while. And again, there's kind of nuance to it. Um, one, you have to get that leucine level two and a half to threefold above. Uh, with a whey protein shake, you can do that within 15 or 20 minutes. You can also do it with a more mixed meal, as you described, with more fat and fiber, which slows down digestion. But to do that, you're probably going to have to have more protein in the meal. So again, we start talking about 45, 50 grams of protein. And what you might see is that as opposed to peaking in 30 minutes, it might not peak till an hour, but it will still peak. And the data suggests you'll get the same effect. But chances are you'll need more total protein to get that effect. So if you use, again, so if you use um, uh, something like whey versus casein, both at 25 grams, you will not get the same effect from the casein to stimulate protein synthesis, both because it has lower leucine, but also because it just won't get the leucine to that higher, high enough level because it digests too slowly. So again, when you start talking about a mixed meal, fiber, fat, does those things do slow down digestion? They slow down gastric emptying, uh, and so that means you probably need to increase the amount of protein. Again, 45, 50 grams is a good target. And you had mentioned that there would potentially be no benefit to go above 50 grams, but really, what you're talking about is there may be no benefit to muscle above 50 grams sure. as opposed sure. to. Thinking about dietary protein as a whole, there may, of course, be benefit. Um, sure. Which, again, goes back to quite a bit of nuances in this conversation. Does it matter if an individual is male or female when it comes to these numbers? It's a great question. Um, on the first cut of answering that, body composition, protein is based on weight. And so, women tend to be smaller than men. So just simply on that. But if we actually had the potential to look at lean body mass, uh, protein should be based on lean body mass. And the numbers we talk about make an assumption that lean body mass is about 75% of body weight. And so based on that, Uh, women have a little less lean mass per weight. They have a little more body fat, 5 to 10% more than men. So theoretically, they'd need a little less protein. 
but I've never seen that actually measured well. Um, so again, first cut, they're simply smaller. Protein is you know 1.5 grams per kilogram body weight. They're smaller. Uh, they also have a little less lean body mass, so technically they should need a little bit less. But that would you say that that is really an overall number versus a meal distribution number? Yeah, that's a total amount per day. So, you know, again, you know, you and I, you know, the RDA is 0.8 grams per kg and you and I talk about, you know, 1.2 to 1.8. Um, you know, I still think the numbers, we've, we've always used the same number for men and women. You know, we, we go to 1.5 to 1.6 and we use it the same. Uh, the one thing that we do adjust for is how overweight you are. So we always tailor it toward uh, what we would consider more of an ideal body weight. So if you have someone whose ideal body weight would be 150 pounds and they weigh 250, we don't base the protein on 250. We base it on 150. Yeah. And, and that's really important, you know, as it relates to thinking about how much protein an individual needs, which again, we mentioned that the RDA is 0.8 grams per kg. Don typically recommends 1.2 to 1.8 grams per kg. I may even go higher, which he cringes at often at 2.2 grams per kg, which ends up being one gram per pound ideal body weight. Again, this also depends on where you are metabolically, how many calories you need. Are you older? Are you suffering with obesity? Do you have a chronic illness? There's, you know, are you an athlete? There's all kinds of reasons why you would adjust that protein amount, but definitely a minimum that an individual would shoot for, ideally, interestingly, would be almost double the RDA. Yeah. We we know that if you look at the studies in the literature, that 0.8 grams per kg, that minimum RDA simply isn't correct for most adults. Uh, almost every study that's ever been run that looks at 0.8 grams per kg versus even 1.2, 1.2 is always better. Uh, as you get from 1.2 up to 2.2, um, we don't have a lot of great studies showing the difference between each of those levels. And I don't have a problem with going to 2.2. I don't have a problem with going to 2.5 if you have a a particular reason to do it. Uh, but from, again, from a pure standpoint of muscle protein synthesis, there's no good data that shows that 2.2 is better than 1.8. Right. And, and that's important. Again, from a muscle perspective, is 2.2 better than 1.8? Likely it's not. The next question would be, what are you filling in? You have to get calories. Are you going to choose carbohydrates? Are you going to choose proteins? Are you going to choose fats? I, I think that it truly is up to the individual as to what those goals are, nutrient density. What does the, about does the protein help you with satiety? I mean, there's all, all kinds of legitimate reasons to go higher. But again, if you're just asking the pure science about if I if I go from 1.8 up to 2.2, am I going to have bigger muscles? No. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, it's interesting when um, 
you see individuals or have you seen in the literature those with more protein deficient diets who then increase their protein? Does an individual require a stimulus to actually put on muscle? Do you require both exercise and dietary protein or is it you know, safe to say an individual just increasing dietary protein will put on muscle without a stimulus? Again, nuance. I think if you were, I think if you're an adult who's down around 0.8, I think increasing your protein to 1.5, you can actually put on lean body mass and probably muscle mass. If you're relatively active uh, and already eating 1.5, well, going to 1.8, put on more muscle mass, I would say no. So again, if you're low, um, adding more protein can be quite beneficial. And that brings us very nicely to this conversation of vegetarian diets. We talked about whey protein. We really talked about high-quality protein, which for individuals who are curious what high-quality proteins are, they are typically animal-based in nature. Again, these are this is a non-emotional conversation. It's really based on hard, fast biological numbers that are based on an amino acid profile. When an individual is a um, more vegetarian or plant-based and would like to swap out a plant-based protein for a whey protein or a yogurt, does that plant-based protein have the same effect? And if not, how would an individual navigate that to ensure that they're getting the correct amino acid or the correct amount of protein? Yeah, great question. The um, Again, subsets of that answer. Um, if one of the studies that has been a lot we've done and many other people have is looking at whey protein, which we've talked about, versus soy protein. They both come as protein isolates. They're both highly pure. They're both readily bioavailable. They're easily digested. And what you'll find is that 25 grams of, of whey protein uh, will stimulate muscle protein synthesis, and it takes about 32 of soy protein. So there's about a, I'm not sure what that is, 20% difference uh, that, that you need a uh, higher amount of soy protein. Soy protein has all the amino acids in it, but again, they're there for the sake of the plant. They're not there for you, <laughs> where when you take a, an animal protein, they're there for biological benefit of animals. So they're perfectly balanced for humans where the plant proteins are there for the balance of plants. You know, roots and stems and flowers are kind of different than hearts and brains and arms and legs. Uh, and so you can do it, but it always requires more. Um, the problem, and when we look in the literature, what we find is that most vegetarians decrease the amount of protein. The average American is eating 80 to 90 grams of protein per day, which is above the RDA, but the average vegetarian is eating around 60. So they're decreasing the quantity and also the quality at the same time. And we're actually involved in doing a lot of modeling right now. Currently, as I mentioned, the average American uh, has uh, around 80 to 90 grams of protein women versus men in their diet. 
and it's around 60% animal protein. So 30% of our calories, we get animal, uh, uh, we get 60% of our protein in it. Uh, as you decrease that, there's a threshold where the minimum RDA won't work. And we're sort of modeling that at the moment. Uh, but if you get down to uh, less than 20% animal protein in a diet, the RDA simply isn't adequate anymore. You have to increase it. Do you think that there is going to be a time that that's reflective in the guidelines? Wow. We can only pray that that would somehow surface. But the political pressures from the food industry, uh, they, they love selling cheap plant protein. So that's my political announcement for the day, <laughs> my soapbox. But um, I hope so. I think there's a beginning realization if you look at the USDA and look at a lot of the MyPlate guidelines, none of them use the RDA as the guide. They're all using above one gram per kg in their models. So while nobody's talking about it, they're at least beginning to model it correctly. So I would hope that that's the case. Um, we're even seeing some of that in the World Health Organization, which has traditionally been sort of against animal protein, uh, to realize now that you know, if you get below 50% animal protein in the diet, you probably aren't getting adequate amino acids and you're probably not getting adequate nutrients, B12, calcium, zinc, selenium, B6, etc. So there's a nutrient density aspect of it. And it doesn't mean you can't create a balanced diet, but it means you need a lot more knowledge and a lot more time to get it right. Right now, Americans get 80% of their plant-based protein from wheat, which is extremely poor quality protein. Um, I mentioned that with whey protein, you can get a leucine effect, a muscle effect with 25 grams, 32 grams of soy. It takes over 40 grams of wheat protein to get to that level. So it's a very poor quality protein. So if Americans are going to become more plant protein oriented, they're going to have to learn to eat very different plant proteins than they currently do. That's an interesting perspective. I wonder how, again, as individuals age, they typically require less calories. They're not necessarily right. as active or even if they were. And if an, indiv in, if an individual were to move in a plant-based direction, then how would it be possible to begin to make up for the food matrix from those high quality dietary proteins? I mean, it's, it's concerning because it's above and beyond just simply macronutrients. We're not just talking about carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. We are talking about the overall um, nutrient requirements, these bioactive compounds that are highly complex and integrated above the diet beyond just talking about um, those traditional, you know, bodybuilding diets, which is chicken breast and rice or from a plant. I don't know what the equivalent of that would be in a, in a plant forward diet, but it really is devoid of these other critical nutrients that we know of. Yeah. I would, I was going to, answer your question, but then you mentioned bioavailability and that sort of changed my answer. Um, I mean, you're right. 
as we get older, and I will vouch for this, uh, we need fewer and fewer calories. And so we have the same nutrient needs or probably even more higher nutrient needs because we're less efficient with the nutrients. We're not as efficient in how our metabolism works. So we need at least the same amount in a lot fewer calories. So nutrient density becomes an absolute issue. And that's one of the plant-based problems is that uh, the plant-based foods just simply aren't as nutrient dense. And so now you start having to talk about supplements. You're going to have to take supplements. Okay, we can get vitamin, mineral supplements. Uh, you're going to have to take processed protein. You're going to have to take isolates. Okay, but that means you're basing your diet around, around ultra-processed foods uh, and what form those take versus natural foods of eggs and milk and fish and things like that. Um, so all of that in the long term, we don't really have data on. Uh, we don't know that that's healthier. Um, then you mentioned bioavailability. We know that, you know, uh, you know, vitamin A from animal sources uh, is more than twice as active as from coming from a plant source. We know that B6 in a pyridoxal phosphate is more than twice as effective as it comes from pyridoxine from a plant source. We know that vitamin D is more than twice as effective when it comes from an animal source. We know that iron is, is probably almost threefold more bioavailable, uh, more digestible from an animal source, calcium. And so all of those things come into play. Um, you know, they're just not the same. Yeah. And I, I think that that, you know, there, there's two things that that leads me to think about. Number one, there's a lot of discussion in the longevity space of reducing animal products, even reducing dietary protein as a way to extend longevity. And my fear is that that is very myopic in uh, a way of thinking and in no way, you know, when we say globally, okay, well, we're going to reduce our dietary protein does that mean below the RDA, which we already know is the minimum, where the data would suggest that individuals require at least, you know, those individuals that are getting 1.2 grams per kg in multiple biomarkers do better than less? Do you have a perspective? Um, again, there's two folds to this question. Number one is, do you have a perspective on the conversation of longevity? And then number two, I recognize that we didn't talk about that last meal going into an overnight fast and how one would consider thinking about that last meal. So I'd love for you to kick it off about longevity and then pivot over to thinking about that last meal. Yeah. You and I definitely have a perspective of sort of muscle-centric health and that, you know, as we get older, Maintaining mobility, maintaining activities of daily life, um, you know, keeping your blood glucose in check, uh, maintaining your blood triglycerides, all of the things that healthy muscles help you do is critical. And so you weigh that against the idea of longevity. Uh, I mean, what is longevity? I mean, are people thinking you're going to live to 120 uh, or or is the goal really to be a healthy, active, viable 95? Uh, you know, I think those are things that people confuse. If you look at the longevity study, the data is all based on two things. One is epidemiology, which you and I make fun of routinely, but 
basically, it's really crappy data. Basically, they'll take one food record, they'll ask somebody what they ate yesterday, and then they'll translate that into 25 years later, and they say, well, he had a heart attack. Well, I didn't eat the same thing yesterday that I ate today or tomorrow. It's just nonsense, in my opinion. Well, for breakfast, you did. <laughs> uh, breakfast, yeah. For me, I'm weird. But anyway, uh, the, so the issue is, you know, you and I would look at how people eat. And there are people who eat three meals a day at fast food restaurants in very sort of unhealthy excess calorie conditions. And oh, by the way, there's some red meat or eggs in that diet. I would argue it's not the red meat in the sandwich. <laughs> it, it was the bun and the French fries and the sodas that actually made it unhealthy. But the correlation shows up as the meat. Okay, so I think the epidemiology of longevity is very suspect. The other part is animal studies. And the problem with the animal studies and longevity is the laziness of the investigators. Basically, the way they do these studies is they'll take a series of rats or mice or whatever, and they'll put them on an aging uh, study, which lasts, you know, two and a half years. And basically, in one group, they'll restrict them. Okay, so we've got one group doing what we call ad libitum feeding. And as you probably remember from my laboratory, ad libitum fed rats eat 24 hours a day. If you go in and look inside their stomach in the middle of their nighttime, it's totally full. They're absor absorptive. We've already talked about, you know, lots of small meals every day. That's not a healthy thing to do. And so basically what we now know is that if you restrict calories, or if you restrict protein, the animals will live longer. Well, what you're doing is actually just normalizing them. Once you begin to restrict them, they shift from being ad libitum fed to now meal feeding. They will eat their meal and then fast until the next time you're fed. And so now we've created meal feeding. We know that meal feeding is better than, at, than grazing all day long. So to me, the two pieces of data that go into the longevity data are both not very reliable. They're both really bad pieces of data. Uh, on the other hand, we know that having healthy muscles uh, in terms of diabetes, in terms of heart disease, in terms of survival from cancer, in terms of not falling and breaking a hip is probably the, the most beneficial health thing you can do. So I would much rather focus on having adequate protein and healthy muscles and having a healthy, being a healthy 95 than being a very unhealthy 105. Yeah, and that's really well said. We've discussed this. If you guys are interested to hear more about the nuances as it relates to some of these longevity experts, you can go back to one of the other videos that we've done. We've talked about it quite frequently. And I do think that it's important because um, the push for longevity really seems to have taken off, which is fascinating. And I, I often think, is it because individuals are afraid of death or is it because we're now starting to see aging parents? What is it and how do we course correct potentially patterns of behavior as it relates to eating and exercise? And there are some very simple things that individuals can do. I would say number one is understanding that the amount of total protein that you eat during the day is critical. 
That could be 1.2 grams per kg up to 2.2 grams per kg. Then distributing it throughout the day, Donna and I have talked really in depth about that first meal. Potentially that middle meal doesn't matter for muscle protein synthesis, but if you are working on getting enough protein during the day, if you are working towards metabolic correction, if you have a chronic condition or are an athlete, there's a whole host of reasons why getting a robust 30 gram or more second meal would be perfectly adequate. Pivoting to that last meal, assuming, um, well, I'll just let you kind of take the floor on what you think about that last meal. And I know you're going to say that it depends on what your other two meals were, but uh, for argument's sake, how do you think about that last meal? Just before we lose the leave the longevity, you know, I think, you know, long-term health, I think the, the data is really good that physical activity, we need routine, phys- you need a routine physical active lifestyle. It needs to re- include some resistance exercise of some form. Uh, and that, that might be yoga in your case, or it could be weightlifting. Uh, we know that excess calories are a huge problem, and we know that adequate protein. Those three things, you know, I think are the things that you should keep in mind, uh, keeping calories in check. And that probably means both carbohydrates and fat getting your protein adequate and having exercise. Um, let's see, your last meal. I, I assume you mean the, a dinner meal versus a meal before bedtime. I do. Okay. I mean the dinner meal. The last mm-hmm. meal, um, you know, I, I like having a large meal per day. I think one meal that's up in the 55-gram range, sort of maxing the system, 60 if you prefer. I, I don't know uh, in terms of any, you know, particular upper number. Um, I like the balance of protein carbohydrates throughout the day. So we always kind of look at teaching a one-to-one balance. So if my breakfast meal has 45 grams of protein in it, you know, I, I usually target about 30 grams of carbohydrate in my breakfast. Uh, If my dinner meal has 55, you know, I think you could probably go to 55 grams of carb. I like to keep that ratio. Um, You know, I think that from a a post-meal response, insulin and everything, I think that ratio makes some sense. Um, So that's kind of how we teach it. I think for most people, it's a lot easier to get vegetables and things into bigger meals. Uh, Again, I don't care whether the big meal is at lunch or dinner, frankly. I usually tell people spreading them between breakfast and dinner, again, if you're under stress. But I grew up on a farm where the big meal of the day was the middle meal. Uh, I don't think there was anything unhealthy about that. Um, So again, I think having a big meal, presumably at night, is fine. Um, And I usually will uh, have more protein in it, partly just because it's convenient. I don't, I don't think there's any particular merit to having 60 at dinner versus 60 at breakfast, frankly. But I like the having the last meal uh, fairly satiating. I want it to have enough protein and fat, so fiber, so that you know, you're not hungry in two more hours before bed. And just to clarify, you're not 
saying that individuals should follow this standard American diet pattern, which is 10 grams of dietary protein at that first meal, and that that second meal is maybe 20 grams, and then that last meal is 60, what you're really saying is that an earlier meal should have, say, 45 grams. And if you are thinking about what your total protein intake should be, the way to structure it would be, say, um, an earlier meal would have around 45 grams. And then if you didn't want to have a, a large second meal, that you could easily put a dinner meal or that last meal to have 55 or so grams of dietary protein. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I mean, that breakfast meal, the typical American has less than 10 grams of protein and over 75 grams of carbs in that breakfast meal. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, that is a prescription for type 2 diabetes. I mean, that is awful. I used to tease that the average American is eating Dean Ornish's diet for breakfast, the Zone diet for lunch, and the Keto diet for dinner. Uh, it's no wonder the bodies are confused. Right, <laughs> right. We talked about consistency and you know circadian rhythms and things earlier. Uh, if you eat in a totally chaotic manner, your body metabolism is going to be chaotic too. Yeah, and you know, in some of your earlier studies, you even showed that those that were isocaloric. I know because I was on the back end of having to do some of this work, which I don't even want to remind myself, you know, as an undergrad, by the way, you get to do a lot of the work and you never get your name on the paper. I just think that potentially uh, if you are an academic professor, this is just a public service announcement. You may consider this. One of the things that you showed so elegantly was that if individuals were eating too isocaloric, um, that the, the, Diets were isocaloric, meaning they both had, say, 1,600 calories or 1,800 calories. Just by changing the macronutrients at breakfast from, say, a higher carbohydrate to a higher protein, ultimately had a very significant positive metabolic implications. And I think that, um, you know, that might have been, I think maybe you started with uh, Jamie Baum. Perhaps yeah. this was a 2006 study. Uh, that I, I think was very interesting and very easy to read. I'm slightly biased. I've probably read it 2,700 times. Um, was simply by, again, changing not the calories. The calories matter. You, we do need to account for calories, but ultimately by changing the distribution of when you are having your macronutrients really plays a role. And what you showed was that by swapping out a high-carbohydrate breakfast for a high protein breakfast that individuals lost more weight, lost more quality of weight, meaning fat, had better triglycerides, had better, better blood pressure, whole host of, of things that really improved. And I think it's so simple and it's free to do just yeah. by leveraging knowledge that we're talking about here. And that's really important. Yeah. Uh, these were weight loss studies. Everybody in both arms of the study had exactly 1,700 calories, so they were isocaloric. They basically both had the same dinners, um, which was interesting. So the one group was following the food guide pyramid as best we could teach it. So they had a high-carb, low-protein breakfast, low-protein low lunch, uh, and a reasonable, balanced dinner. Uh, and the other group had essentially the same, maybe slightly tweaked lower-carb but what we did 
was we, in the first two meals, we substituted out about 60 grams of carbohydrate for 60 grams of protein. And what we showed was that they lost more weight, they lost more body fat, they lost less lean mass. We corrected glycemic regulations. We lowered their triglycerides. We increased their HDLs. So across the board, every biomarker got healthier just by swapping out 60 grams of carbs for 60 grams of protein in those first two meals. And that's critical because, again, you took the model of a standard American diet, which potentially you were restricting calories, but still just making the subtle shifts of macronutrients really changed the trajectory of an individual's weight loss. I think that we could probably uh, talk forever, which we won't. I do want to ask you one final question. Where does exercise fit in as it relates to pushing this lever of protecting, maintaining muscle health and metabolism? And of course, this in and of itself is a a whole other podcast, which we'll do a part two and a part three and all the parts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, can you uh, yeah. frame exercise, that? Exercise is critical. Um, muscle, frankly, responds more to exercise than it does to diet. Uh, and you and I have now spent an hour talking about protein. Um, but resistance exercise and, and aerobic exercise, too, are critical to muscle health. If I was going to put them on a scale, um, assuming you're not protein deficient, assuming you're not 0.8 or less, assuming you're up in the 1.2 or something, exercise probably has 75% of the effect on healthy muscle and diet 25%. If you're, if you're trying to be an athlete and gain muscle mass, you're only going to really do it by having resistance exercise and, and the strength. If you're an older adult and you're trying to gain strength, it, you need exercise. Just eating protein won't do it unless you're too low. So again, we, we mentioned that if you're, if you're below one gram per kg, if you're down around the RDA, going higher will be a benefit. But if you're at 1.5, you're not going to get that much better by going to 1.8, but adding more resistance exercise is a big deal. So if we look at if we look at the mechanisms inside of the muscle, what we know is that mTOR signal that we briefly touched on is sensitive to leucine, but it's also very sensitive to uh, resistance exercise, to stress. A molecule known as RED1 is a trigger uh, that is related, and exercise sort of inhibits that, which allows mTOR to be more responsive. So one of the things I always tell tell vegetarians and vegans is that if you're going to be really low protein, then you darn well better be careful about having high levels of resistance exercise because that's your only saving grace for protecting muscle. Yeah. And one of the other aspects that we think about is that 100% of people have to eat you might as well nail that piece. <laughs> yeah. Right? 100% of people have to eat, whereas the evidence suggests that there's, you know, 24, 25% of uh, adults are meeting their requirement for both yeah. resistance training and cardiovascular activity. So most people are not meeting the needs of activity. While that is critical and arguably more impactful from a whole body perspective, the majority of people are not doing enough. 
Yeah. Whereas you're 100 percent right that most people has to eat. are. Uh, uh, it's much more in their strike zone to change their diet than to change their exercise. Yes. Yes. So we will eventually get to exercise, but again, having you on to lay out some fundamental changes would, you know, is, is incredibly helpful and critical for the listener. Again, you guys, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to some of our other podcasts. I'm sorry, YouTube videos, if you want to know what dietary protein should, you know, recipes for dietary protein, you can sign up for my 30 Gs. Now you know where the name came from. Um, I will include all the links to Don here. And as I had mentioned before, my book Forever Strong is coming out October 17th. It's on pre-sale now. It is fully dedicated to my best friend and mentor of a lifetime, Don Lehman. So thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure to join you as always. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.